everyone, my name is Aisa and welcome to season 3 of the Seek to Speaks podcast where we are experimenting on different formats and ideas relating to speaking and speeches and you tell us whether you like them. So today we'll be recording our very first speech session podcast episode where we highlight amazing speeches based on a team and this episode's team is Call to Action Speeches and if you've ever heard my episode with the Ruma Roy podcast, you know that this is a long time coming collaboration. Seek to speak. And joining me today is Roshan from the Ruma Roy podcast, part-time philosopher, wordsmith extraordinaire and podcaster as well as full-time lawyer. Welcome back to the show, Roshan. How are you feeling? (laughs) Thank you so much for the introduction. Um, Always glad to collaborate with uh, the Seek to Speak podcast. Yeah, I'm really happy to be here. Uh, no idea how this is going to go, but uh, I will do my level best <laughs> to not to not embarrass myself. <laughs> you and I both. All right. So in this speech session, to tell all of you, we have curated a list of our top call to action speeches and some of them are fan favorites that may be familiar to you and some we hope you discover along the way with us through this episode. So what we will do is we will each introduce a speech, play our chosen snippet, talk about the context of the speech, the message, the speaker's style, and then maybe have a deeper understanding on why each of us chose these speeches. Okay, so maybe we'll start with you first. Mm -hmm. Uh, Roshad, can you tell us what is your first speech that you have chosen? Okay, my first speech is by Winston Churchill, who I'm sure a lot of people know. Um, This speech is actually... uh, also known as the blood tall tears and sweat speech. Yeah, so I think we'll just play the clip first. All right, this amazing reenactment. <laughs> I would say to the house, as I said to those who have joined the government, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I will say, it is to wage war by sea, land and air, with all our might and with all the strength that God can give us, to wage war against a monstrous tyranny, never surpassed in the dark and lamentable catalogue of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word, victory. Victory at all costs, victory in spite of all terror, Victory, however long and hard the road may be, for without victory, there is no survival. Let that be realised. No survival for the British Empire. No survival for all that the British Empire has stood for. No survival for the urge and impulse of the ages. Then mankind will move forward towards its goal. But I take up my task with buoyancy and hope. I feel sure that our cause will not be suffered to fail among men. At this time, I feel entitled to claim the aid of all. And I say, come then, let us go forward together with our united strength. Man, it's so, wow. cr- it's so cringy to listen to myself. Wow. Oh no, not at all. I feel like if it was Winston, I wouldn't be able to relate. You know what I'm saying? It yeah. sounds like a voice that is familiar. How did it feel to read out those words, those very powerful words? Actually, it's really different to speak than to read. Yeah. And when you read it, you also kind of get into the rhythm of the writer. Only when I started to read it, I actually felt the passion 
and the urgency from uh, Churchill. So it actually came out a lot more. The rhythm of his writing came out when I read it out, which was really, really interesting. Yeah, it was almost like poetry, in fact. Yeah. And it, it felt like it had a life cycle of like hardship and then hope at the end. Yeah, definitely. Was, you picked a really good snippet. Yeah. So when when was this speech given? It was, is it the same speech, you know, his infamous speech of we will fight on the seas, <laughs> we will fight in. Is that is no, that so the basically this was um his first speech in parliament after being elected as prime minister. Mm, yeah, and I I, I just sometimes it, it makes me think about our Malaysian education that we actually didn't r- learn so much about this part of history. I remember the Second World War and the First World War being really small chapters in Sejarah. But actually, the drama was so intense. Like, first thing is, Churchill actually was not a popular politician. A lot of people didn't like him. general. Yeah, a lot of people didn't like him before the war, uh, even within his own party. But because of circumstances, he became, he was elected as Prime Minister. He went into Parliament knowing a lot of people didn't like him. He was only Prime Minister by a slim margin. And the day he became Prime Minister, uh, the Germans started their invasion of France. They had already taken Poland. So he's actually going into Parliament now, giving the speech, trying to get everybody into his camp and start preparing everybody to fight. Because you have to understand, Poland is gone. France is gone. These are world powers, especially France. It's a big mm. deal. And so these speeches, actually, they were not just... They were not just simple things made for to you know for for pomp and ceremony those speeches had a purpose he needed to get everyone on board because they were in talks with the germans to uh, go into a peace agreement a settlement oh. history could have turned and become so different if it was not for churchill churchill was so steadfast in going to war yeah yeah he was and i think the way he emphasized the gravity of the situation he didn't sugarcoat he was very upfront because he was also a soldier in the First World War when he was young. And that was one of the most horrible wars of all time, right? And so I think he was very well aware of the gravity of the situation and what it would take to overcome. And his legacy uh, lives on because of that. Yeah, and like um, when you gave that context of like the need to rally people behind his cause, Mm. it makes a lot more sense, the words that he used. Because I'm sure there was a lot of people that was questioning him. It's very odd for a politician to put those questions into the speech. You ask me, what is my policy? You ask me, what is my aim? You know, so you can already see from there that there is doubt. And instead of like uh, going into finer details... He's basically addressing his haters, uh. But do you think he's a bit smart in like trying to like say, uh, make it quite wide? Like I have a, my policy, uh, I'm against tyranny. My aim, victory. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let that one fly now. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> but you know, um, I feel like his speeches are so signature Churchill. Like um, even much later when the war progressed, he is still very sure, sure. steadfast with his realism and pragmatism. And I don't know, what do you think the message was for this speech in particular? What was he trying to rally support for? Were there a lot of people against the war? Do you know? I think it was a lot of people were against him. Mm. There were a lot of people who thought they should just enter a settlement with Germany. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, there was. There oh, were a lot I of did people. not know that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So after they invaded France, 
they entered mm. negotiations with Germany to enter into a settlement, like a proper negotiation with the, at the highest levels of leadership from both the camps. But uh, Churchill was against it, like he said, "No, mm. just it's time for war." And so I think he was trying to really pull at the heartstrings of every uh, British person. There was an emotional sort of nostalgia that he was pulling to. You know, this great country, this great empire, and mm. uh, and we need to rally behind this great empire, and we cannot fail because we are the greatest of all, and this cannot be our downfall. You know, this cannot be the fall of Rome, so to speak. And so I think he was very, he was very, very masterful in bringing people together uh, from different factions against uh, a common uh, enemy like, or adversary. Yeah, he's quite. A master of words, definitely. To be honest, yeah, he's actually a, a Nobel uh, winner in literature, if I'm not mistaken. Oh wow! Yeah, he's a prize winner. Yeah, Churchill is Churchill gets a lot of flack because a lot of his views, when you look at it now, they can be taken as racist and colonial and whatever. But he was so much more as well. He was, uh, like I said, a Nobel Prize winner. He was a historian. He was a brilliant painter. Wow, yeah, yeah. I I I always picture him as a hardball, like somebody who's like unapproachable, who's like super like blunt. How, would you say that a lot of I know you mentioned just now a lot of his speeches, there's a lot of truth in that. Do you think that he was saying things that people were scared to say, and because of that, people respected him? Yeah, I think he definitely was a no nonsense sort of uh, person. Uh. Oh, also something interesting about his speech. Actually, Winston mm. Churchill was born with a lisp. What? He actually had a big problem uh, speaking, and he had to overcome that. Yeah, he completely trained it out of himself. Like he is not a born orator; he's like a made orator by his own volition. Okay, so now we'll go to your speech. Yes. Okay, let's do it. I have also chosen a speech that happened almost a century later. Yeah. Given by a young woman called Greta Thunberg, who was at that time 16 years old. And she gave this speech at the United Nations Climate Action Summit in New York City. And this is my poor imitation <laughs> of it. My message is that we'll be watching you. This is all wrong. I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. Yet you all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. And yet, I'm one of the lucky ones. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction and all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth? How dare you? For more than 30 years, the science has been crystal clear. How dare you continue to look away and come here saying that you're doing enough when the politics and solutions needed are still nowhere in sight. You say you hear us and that you understand the urgency. But no matter how sad and angry I am, I do not want to believe that. Because if you really understood the situation and still kept on failing to act, then you would be evil. And that I refuse to believe. Alright, so that speech is now endearingly called 
how dare you speech. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know how old she was when she when she? Yeah, she was sixteen um, when she gave that. Right. So um, uh, she started protesting against climate action. Sorry, climate change when she was fifteen, and she was invited to speak at this summit. So and it's actually a very short speech. It's less than four minutes. She was part of a panel, and they actually asked her like. Hey, so what's your message? So that was like the tone. So she was like, right. um, "My message is we're watching you," and you know, um, everybody there was much older. She was the youngest panelist. So when she says we're watching you, literally everybody laughed because I'm like, ha 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 ha! Look at this girl, like saying mm. we're watching you. And because it was such a light-hearted tone, so you know, like normal lah. Oh, young activist, what's your message to the world? And then usually you'll come out with oh, a message of hope, blah blah blah. So she was the first. Young person to actually say, you know what? We're watching you. How dare you say things like this? How dare you? And she was legitimately emotional. Like, I mean, in comparison to Churchill, which was practiced, um, probably memorized. Would you say? Do you think he memorized his speech? I think he would have had it written down. Not sure whether he memorized yes. it. Yes. So she was sitting down. And she had had that paper in front of her, and she was shaking as she was talking. And so when she, when she first started, oh, we're watching you, and everybody started mm. laughing. And she's like having none of it. She's like, no, how dare you? And mm. then she started getting emotional, and then the room was stunned because mm. they realized that they were being scolded by this person that is, which her lived reality is that. The house is burning, um, and that's that's what uh, that's another one of her famous lines. Um, the house is burning, and you guys are not acting like it is. Mm. So, and that's how she became like a household name after that speech. That speech actually catapulted her um, to center stage. Basically. Yeah, everyone knew about her. It became like uh, it went viral in a way. Yeah, and I think it was similar in a sense where. Um, with Churchill's speech where you have so yeah. many people talking about climate change, so many politicians advocating for policies but maybe not really doing a lot or mean anything meaningful and nobody really like calling out people's lack of action yeah. until Greta came. And I think the only reason this speech became so powerful was because she said things that were not being said. Mm. She was... And she didn't care about what she said um, because she didn't politically gain anything from it. So yeah. she never had to tiptoe. And I think that's why it was very real. And I think that's why a lot her message really resonated with so many people because you can really see the authenticity in mm. her message. Um, she was shaking. It almost looked like she was about to cry. That's how mm. angry she was. Right. Yeah. Have you seen the speech yourself? Yeah, yeah, I have, I have. Um, actually, that first line is a very powerful line. Even when she said it, and even when you read it, um, and I guess in uh, in the sense when it comes to a speech, it shows you how important that first line is, because it really hits home. And I think it's interesting because you have these two people, Churchill and uh, Greta Thunberg. Completely different people. I mean, different generations and different, really different identities, different outlooks in life. But the way that they were able to convey a hard message, you know, and pull people from 
all factions or all groups. With Churchill, maybe it was a different factions in the UK itself. Uh, and with uh, Greta, you know, worldwide, she managed to pull people together. I think it just goes to show the power of being able to vocalize a harsh reality and at the same time, again, not bring people together against this common enemy. Right? It's just yeah. powerful. And that common enemy this mm. time is climate change. Yeah. And I feel like for both speakers, they have they hold unpopular opinions. Yeah. Because I'm sure at that time, uh, off the back of World War One, yeah. war, another war is like Horrible. something nobody wanted, right? Yeah, and I guess and in, in a way, they were both also unpopular. Yes. Right? No, you're right. She's really unpopular. I mean, she is a role model to a lot of girls, but she's deeply unpopular with uh, the older generation. Did you see the Trump, <laughs> the tweet war with Trump and... Yeah, I mean, obviously yeah. Trump is not a um, not a but, fan of anybody's but <laughs> but even Putin criticized uh, Greta Thunberg do you think it's because of her age or because yeah. also they feel like um, maybe she I think you know what mm. I think Churchill and um, Greta is similar in a, son, in a sense where they sound very idealistic they sound almost naive in their ideals yeah yeah definitely I would definitely agree on that and also I think with Greta specifically and maybe with Churchill, I'm not sure. But it's hard to face reality. It's hard to mm. face harsh truths. And there is a natural reaction to oppose it. And so I, I noticed with Greta Thunberg, a lot of people kind of fall into this trap of criticizing her age uh, and her experience, but not really talking about her, the content of what she was talking about. Is our issues around climate being addressed sufficiently? That's what she spoke about. But instead of uh, addressing that, people talk about how she's she doesn't know much of the world and how the mm. world works. and But that's not really the point, I guess. Yeah, I mean, like, even Trump, his famous tweet against her was like, go back to school. Yeah. Um, chill, girl, <laughs> chill. Like. <laughs> and then after the, uh, he lost the election, she turned back and said, why don't you chill? <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> okay, so I think um, that wraps it up for our first choice. Um, do you want to introduce your second choice, Roshan? Okay, so the second speech I've chosen is from Abraham Lincoln, and this is his second inaugural address. Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue, until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, until every drop of blood drawn with a lash shall be paid by another drawn with a sword. As was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. With malice towards none, with charity for all. With firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right. Let us strive on to finish the work we are in. To bind up the nation's wounds. To care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. So that's from Lincoln. That's his, the tail end of his second inaugural address. So basically, it means that he was just elected as president for a second term. The speech is actually very, very interesting, and it's considered one of the greatest American speeches. And the context is actually very, very important. This was the tail end of the Second World War. It was days 
it was going to end in a few days' time. So Lincoln knew that they were going to win. Right? It was pretty much in hand already. He gets re-elected. He gives this speech. And it's not a speech of triumph. Like we were talking about Trump. Imagine if Trump... You know, Trump just organizing a meeting between North Korea and South Korea, you know, and he talks about how he's... Yeah, he talks about how he's the greatest president ever. But Lincoln has managed to do the unimaginable. He has managed to secure a victory and keep America together. There was no uh, cessation, right? And his speech is not one of triumph. It's one of actually sadness, right? It's one of caution. You know, it's one of reconciliation. You know, he's trying to really explain and put in context why this happened, what's going to happen if we don't move forward, and why reconciliation is so important. If you notice at the end, he says, he talks about harboring no ill intent towards another person, like really being sincere in, in trying to bring people together. So I just thought it was such a, a powerful speech. For me, because I kind of relate as a person who's more on the centre, you know, I don't like uh, views that are too partisan, you know, liberal, conservative. You know, I feel there's truth in each one and we need to know how to sort of come to, a common, come to the common ground, right? And I feel like Lincoln was a very good centrist. Like he held the same biases that white people in his time held, but he was able to also read, listen, understand and move forward. And with mm. and with his because he understood that the the views of his people, uh, I mean the people of his class and his station in life, he was able to sort of lead them forward, and then he's also able to uh, reach out to the African American slaves and also bring them in the fold and unite these two groups that are so different. Just think, it's such a this speech is so so powerful, and he yeah. he was assassinated about yeah about forty days uh, after this speech was was given after this speech do you think he knew yeah because i feel like this speech sounded almost i mean correct me if i'm wrong it's very it sounded almost biblical um in the when i say biblical i meant the way that he spoke it was with such fluidity and gentleness but at the same time it was there was so much power and authority in his words because the way he used his words he's talking about something that is really atrocious and horrible that has happened. I mean, even the way he said this, until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword. I mean, the incredible mastery of just that one sentence to explain the price or the cost of a war Mm. and um, slavery. It's just, I think it's amazing saying more with less. You know, he has that, he has that uncanny ability to do that. Yeah. And so I think this is an absolutely lovely speech that I think is extremely underrated because he is known for his other speech, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The Gettysburg yeah, this, Address. And, uh, yes. Um, yeah. I mean, like, even when I teach my kids, you know, that's the, that's the go-to speech that I would refer to. I mean, he used a, he used a lot of alliteration, repetition, by the people, for the people. What was it? Government by the people, for the people, something the people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. so he's... He uses, a lot of bi- he uses a lot of biblical imagery as well, which is I think is very religious? powerful. Or, or do you think uh, at that time people were religious and so this was very important? 
okay, with everything with Lincoln, he's actually a very complex character. So he mm. he was. I mean, he's actually a self-made man. Like he's self-taught, became a lawyer. He's actually was from a very poor background. So he knew the Bible intimately. Uh, how religious he was, I'm not sure because he he did attend church, but he never really spoke about his faith in that way. Some say that after he lost his son, um, mm, it really made him become more more religious. Uh, but I do think he used uh, biblical verses and imagery to speak and reach out to the to the the man on the street. It's a because the biblical images and truth is was a very powerful way to unite them. Because again, it's like trying to help people understand the context, right? You know, like this is the way we normally do things, but there is a, there's a higher and overarching principle: liberty, right? Liberty for all, and what that really means. And I think he used uh, biblical imagery as a way to express that. I think even before this, what was um, who was it that say something? God was created, uh, created as equal. And if we believe that truth to be self-evident, yeah, then um, that line I can't remember. I only know yeah, it yeah, from yeah. Hamilton. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Not from history. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, which but, but it's a, because that's a very f- powerful statement. Because when you say anything is self-evident, hmm. you know that that means that you believe that there is a, a deeper virtue that there's an absolute or objective truth or moral. And so what they're saying is that freedom is a, it's a deeply moral thing that you know, goes beyond uh, 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 cultural norms. La. Like across time, across culture, freedom is going to be something very important. Yeah. Yeah. And I noticed like, and not just his speech. I mean, you can see the evo- evolution of time that his speech was v- um, peppered with a lot of religious imagery um, and analogies. And I think you can see um, when you say he wants to appeal to the masses that at that time, uh, faith was very much important um, to the masses. And then you can see from Churchill's speech also that was still quite apparent there. Right. That's the thing. When I think about Malaysian politics, for example, a lot of times we have people like in so-called Bangsa Baba, right? Mm. Or we have people who are very literate and they talk down to people. You know, I find this, it happens a lot with Indians and Chinese, especially when they're trying to communicate with the majority of Malays in the country, there's a tendency for them to talk down. And I find that it's really unhelpful. And it's also a very shallow way of communicating with people, you know, and it's very dismissive yeah. and it's counterproductive. So I think again, like, like what you, you, you picked on, like Lincoln was able to communicate in the language of the people. And I mean, he was a very well-read person. He was a lawyer. He could have introduced, you know, all these sort of philosophical uh, concepts. Uh, but he he spoke in a language that people could understand. He doesn't sound posh, even though he used beautiful language. Mm. And I think um, that's the beauty of it, being able to use simple language and making it beautiful. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So yeah, that's just another thing that you you mentioned. Like you mentioned, like do you think he could have, he kind of knew that he was going to be assassinated? I'm not mm-hmm. sure. I don't think that's the case. But what I can say is he definitely because by end of the Civil War, he actually lost a lot of people. Notice had lost a lot of weight, um, mm. and like just even muscle mass. There are even pictures of him, and he just looks really sickly. And so I wonder the stress that he he would have gone through because. You know, he's fighting he a lost in, his child. 
he lost a child. There's an insane war that he's fighting. You know, it's and his the amount of political maneuvering he would have had to go through to to just secure his coalition, right? Because there were people who were just wanted slavery to end immediately at all costs. There were people who were anti-war, and of course there were there were Confederates who were pro who wanted to maintain the laws on slavery, and he's having to manage all these different groups, right, and trying to maintain his the power that he would need to secure the the, the relevant law, right, and it's I can't imagine the stress he went through. The, like you know the um, Emancipation right uh, mm. Proclamation, I was reading about it and it's so famous, but actually Lincoln did that because he needed soldiers and it was a right. way it was a way to get african americans to leave the south and move north so then the south would be handicapped because they don't have labor hmm. but he was very worried about doing it because he foresaw that it would create a lot of tension between both the races moving forward you know yeah, so this is what you mean by complex and a bit contradictory as well his character right yeah 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 he was he was balancing a lot of different things. Even the way when he, before he became president, the way he was trying to get rid of slavery was he would go maybe state by state, and he would enter an agreement with parties. So a lot of the slave owners were paid, and then they would release their slaves. That was his preferred method of moving forward because then everyone is on board, mm. right? But the war, in. yeah, but the war forced his hand in a lot of ways. So I just can't imagine the stress he would have been going through. And so I think that also sort of coloured his speech. You know? I see. So that's why it wasn't hopeful. It was more of like, I'm done. I'm so tired. <laughs> I'm so tired. Yeah, we, we need to move forward. <laughs> it's a lot like when you see Barack Obama at the start of his term and at the end of his term and you're like, whoa, what happened? <laughs> yeah. He looks like a completely different person. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> Oh man! I was like, he looks His like a drug addict. <laughs> His hair great. <laughs> yeah, the incredible burden of uh, leading a nation—it's—it's it's crazy. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, my next choice of um, speech comes several years. That's <laughs> 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 uh, several years after, and I think it's on the same vein and on the same theme. And it's a fan favorite. It is none other than the I Have a Dream speech by Martin Luther King. So even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. All right, that was Martin Luther King, another person fighting for black rights and who was ultimately assassinated 
for that as well. Mm. And why this was significant is because when he started his speech, he actually um, referenced the Emancipation Proclamation, yeah. uh, which Lincoln had signed. And then he talked about, he painted this beautiful story about how slavery ended and how um, he used the word Negro. Yep. Uh, the blacks were freed. And yet a hundred years later, um, he used the words, the Negro is still not free. Mm. So it puts into perspective the fact that he is fighting not only the same war, but because he gave this speech in Washington, D.C., presumably in front of uh, Lincoln's memorial, it became like such an iconic um, speech because of what it represents and what he continues to fight for. And I think it's so timely that we're bringing these speeches up because many years later, so mm. that speech was given in 1963, many years later, we are still yeah. um, fighting for black rights. And I think a lot of the BLM protest was also in front of the Lincoln Memorial that they had to actually put it on lockdown and they had guards around there. Mm. And people just thought that it's so ironic that we had all of these incidents representing the same fight and we are still having the same conversation. So um, thank you for picking that speech yeah. so that I can introduce this speech. And um, Martin Luther King, a minister. Yeah. So you can see a lot of references as well to religion, which goes to show that even many years later, religion is still something that is very relatable and it connects with so many people. Do you think his message is something that resonated with a lot of people? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm hard-pressed to find a more famous speech than, than his speech, right? I think if you go to any public speaking class, his speech is one of the speeches that, are, that will be taught, right? <laughs> yes, um, yeah. yeah many times in my class <laughs> yeah so why do you think that's the case though because like really among all the speeches his speech is the most famous it was famous when it was said it's famous now and I don't think it's only because the issue is still relevant right because there were other African American civil rights leaders as well I mean like Malcolm X has become a lot more popular now but his speeches don't have the same... And it's more radical, quote-unquote. Mm. So less palatable. Right. In my opinion, I think because it's recorded and it was seen by 250,000 people at that time. Yep. And not only that, apparently the I Have a Dream um, part of that speech was actually impromptu. Wow. So context, he's actually quite a trained orator. Mm. I mean, obviously, he did a lot of. Um, sorry, what was that? What's what's that called in church when you give the? Uh, like a sermon. Yeah, so he does um, a lot of that. But even before he was a minister, he used to join mm. um, public speaking and oratory competitions. So he already had a way with his words. He's very good with rhetoric, and he's the type of person who will write speeches and practice it to the T until mm. he got it right. So just so happened that his most famous speech is actually the speech that he gave impromptu, the I have a dream part. 
simply mm. because his previous speeches had alluded to the I have a dream team mm. and like a lot of his advisors were saying it's kind of corny mm. um, you know you have a big stage you shouldn't use the same team it should be something different because he wasn't the only speaker that day you're absolutely right there were a lot of speakers yeah. that day but like there's someone a, from there's a key and peel sketch where I, I think they they sort of like do a joke about the guy who goes after Martin Luther King (laughs) 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 the guy goes up and then he's looking like what do I say (laughs) anybody else wants to go (laughs) (laughs) it's actually a really funny skit yeah (laughs) yeah 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 Um, Yeah, so yeah so apparently somebody from the crowd said tell us the dream Tell, tell us the dream Mm. And then because, you know, he already had a following. So then he said, you know what? I have a dream and I have a dream. And among all of the parts of his speech, that was the thing that people resonated the most with. And it's so different from Lincoln's speech, which was quite sobering, Mm. somber, serious. From here, not very hopeful, Mm. like you said, cautious. But his speech was very, very... Would you say hopeful? Would you say... I think, again, that, that play with imagery, that line, I, my favourite line is when he says, I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. It's such a image. Mm. Automatically, there's kind of a picture that comes in your mind, right? And in that way, it's very hopeful. You know, in, in that way, it is... It takes a lot of skill to not put anyone down and still yeah. try and get them out of their position, right? And I think maybe that's a big difference between Martin Luther and, and um, Malcolm X, right? Malcolm X was like, we need to go to war. <laughs> like, mm. blood will be spilled. You know, that was, his, that, that was his message. But Martin Luther was like, no, I think there's going to be a time where we can all come together and it's going to be a beautiful, beautiful time. And so that, that was definitely very powerful. I think that visualization, if people are able to create that mental image in their mind and work towards that becoming a reality, mm. I think it's a lot easier for people to um, buy the dream, to buy his message. And I think that's why ultimately his speech was the most popular mm. because it actually painted that picture. And he only asked people to fight at the end. And even then, it wasn't like, you know, let's go to war. It was literally, let freedom ring. And he said it eight, eight times in the different states uh, that was prone to, more prone to discrimination. Let freedom ring, let freedom ring. And so, like, he called to action and he inspired people to fight yeah. without asking them to take up arms, yeah. without inciting hatred, without, but rather instilling this experience this future that everybody would be willing to fight for because bear in mind it wasn't an all blacks like audience yeah there were a lot of um white supporters there as well at that yeah time. this speech is not a pandering speech this is a speech to try and convert and i think that's mm-hmm. where the minister um the minister experience comes in because as a minister you're trying to convert hearts right you're either trying to convert yeah. get people who are, don't believe in god or who are of a different faith or, um, or have lost their faith, to, you're trying to convince them to come back to God, right? So it, you cannot pander. 
you have to be able to really speak people will see right through you yeah so he's speaking really to the to the white people as well and i think again like, that's so powerful even that actually is such a amazing speech that line we hold these truths to be self evident that all men are created equal like just putting in in there right again it's a callback to the formation of the country it's a callback yeah. to lincoln it's a callback to so many things in there just that one line yeah it's very powerful oh my gosh actually these two speakers i, I don't know i i now find that if you're able to say more with less yeah. then you are like a master yeah, in words. Definitely. Let's go on to another <laughs> cause. Okay. All right. So what's your next choice? My next speech is Mahatma Gandhi's Quit India speech. Uh, yeah, so you can just play it. Then, there's the question of your attitude towards the British. I've noticed that there is hatred towards the British among the people. The people say they are disgusted with their behaviour. The people make no distinction between British imperialism and the British people. To them, the two are one. This hatred would even make them welcome the Japanese. It is most dangerous. This means that they will exchange one slavery for another. We must get rid of this feeling. Our quarrel is not with the British people. We fight their imperialism. The proposal for the withdrawal of British power did not come out of anger. It came to enable India to play its due part at the present critical juncture. It is not a happy position for a big country like India to be merely helping with money and material obtained willy-nilly from her while the United Nations are conducting the war. We cannot evoke the true spirit of sacrifice and valour so long as we are not free. I know the British government will not be able to withhold freedom from us when we have made enough self-sacrifice. We must, therefore, purge ourselves of hatred. Speaking for myself, I can say that I have never felt any hatred. As a matter of fact, I feel myself to be a greater friend of the British now than ever before. One reason is that they are today in distress. My very friendship, therefore, demands that I should try to save them from their mistakes. As I view the situation, they are on the brink of an abyss. It therefore becomes my duty to warn them of their danger even though it may, for the time being, anger them to the point of cutting off the friendly hand that is stretched out to help them. People may laugh. Nevertheless, that is my claim. At a time when I have to launch the biggest struggle of my life, I may not harbour hatred against anybody. So again, it's funny that we start with this speech because Martin Luther was also influenced greatly by Gandhi. Mm. So it's, oh, I it's, did not know that. Yeah, it's a good flow of um, speeches. The context here is basically this is the Second World War. Gandhi has become very prolific. And so um, they're unhappy at being pulled into the Second World War without their own consent, right? They are being asked to fight a war and, they, and Gandhi says he, he wants to fight this war but you cannot force me to fight this war. You cannot force me to lay down my life without giving us our freedom. If you want us to fight, at least let us be independent and free. And the reason why I chose this speech is because I feel like in our time right now, 
increasingly we are becoming more and more partisan. You're either this or that. And more than that, we have this tendency to need to, this desire or need to vilify the other. You know, if you don't believe the so things true. that I believe, then you're my enemy. If you don't believe the things I believe, then you're stupid. And Gandhi, in his speech, I mean, this again is the tail end of his speech, he lays down his principle of uh, ahimsa, which is non-violence, right? A non-violence principle. And he makes this very important distinction between the people, the British people, and the imperialism, right? And it's so powerful and so forward-thinking that he was able to do that. I think we, you and me, Aisa, we grew up with Gandhi being a very famous figure. And yeah. so I think we took it as like, isn't that natural? Isn't that normal that you should try and advocate for non-violence? But now you see this, like for example, Malcolm X becoming more and more popular. There is this sort of uh, talking point now about the need for violence to destroy systems. And I feel Gandhi needs to or is going to become relevant again. His message is going to become relevant again because his main message was you don't have to destroy the system to dismantle, sorry, you don't need to use violence to dismantle the system, right? You can actually, and like he says it at the end, I know you all are going to laugh at me, but he's basically saying with love, I'm going to dismantle the system for the good of the other person, right? And I just think that's sorely missed in our conversations now, conversations now. How many of us say that we need to do this for the betterment of the other? Most of us just want to advance our own positions, right? So I just thought it was yeah. so relevant. Wow. Do you know that when you gave me that perspective and that context, mm. this speech becomes so much more um, powerful than it already is because especially when you contrast it with how divided we are now mm. because this speech is really saying that that distinction need to be made between ideology and people, governance and citizens and not only that i think the idea of against hatred is so apparent here like mm. like you said he's very for non-violence but he kept using the word there is no hatred here there is no hatred here and it's so ironic because mm. years later that is all you can hear from politicians yeah. the way that they get support is through incitement of hatred by sowing division, by playing on fears, on racial lines, on this idea that there is a threat that is coming from out to get you. And yeah. it's so incredible. And I think you're absolutely right. Uh, why Gandhi will become relevant after this is because there needs to be somebody who comes in and diffuse that hatred because hate is temporary. Um, yeah. What happens when we do go to arms? What happens when we do... Um, storm the capital you know is yeah. that the result that we want and what are we because, dismantling yeah because even though the intent might be pure but it will it could create a toxic cycle of aggression that just never ends right and of all the speeches I, I think Gandhi actually tries to do the most in the sense that imagine trying to ask people to fight without fighting you know, like, the, he was arrested immediately after, the next day after he gave the speech, he was arrested. And I think the, I think it's the Congress that he was, he was going to deliver, I think he delivered the speech to the Congress. Um, I'm not, I'm not too familiar with Indian politics, so I don't know whether it's a state Congress or a national Congress, I'm not sure. But all of them were arrested immediately. Oh, no. Right, and so, 
by the British during the Second World War, which is amazing that the British still had the the resources to do that <laughs> in the first place. But <laughs> but ima- <laughs> imagine imagine having to tell people not to take action, not to fight back when you're arrested. And the truth is, mm. w- even though it looked like an apparent loss, maybe for the layperson, Gandhi was forward thinking. And this speech, the arrest that happened later, the protest that happened because of it, it was a deciding factor that later led to the British peacefully leaving India. So mm. it, 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 he did not fail. He was actually spot on and he did the, the right thing. Again, like the ability to just bring people, not make people the enemy and make them heroes as well. Like he keeps on like talking to the British people, like in a way trying to make them like, I'm your friend. You know, I'm your friend. I'm here to support you. You know, just like give this to me and help me with this. And so I think that's brilliant. No? Yeah, you're right. He planted that seed that uh, eventually grow. And I think he did, a v- he played a very dangerous game mm. um, in a sense that he took an unpopular view um, that did not ask anyone to do anything to fight. In fact, he basically told everybody to stop hating. Yeah. So that's really difficult. I mean, like to call people to action in that way. Yeah. Everybody knows that you need to incite that kind of anger and that kind of like emotion. So to me, he's a very, very unique speaker in that he is able to rally support through non-violent means and through his message of Peace. Yeah. So your your next good. speech also has a similar speaker that sort of emphasizes empathy, clarity, kindness, looking at the other, right? Yes, I'm actually surprised that you managed to link it that <laughs> way because uh, just for our listeners' um, uh, fun fact, we prepared the speech separately. This was our top picks. Yeah. And we only realized later when we revealed it to each other that there were a lot of links in between, even if they were told by different people at different times. So my speech that I want to introduce is the speech by J.K. Rowling um, in Harvard in 2008. It's her commencement address. So this is how it sounds. One of the many things I learned at the end of that classics corridor down which I ventured at the age of 18, in search of something I could not then define, was this, written by the Greek author Plutarch, what we achieve inwardly will change outer reality. That is an astonishing statement and yet proven a thousand times every day of our lives. It expresses in part our inescapable connection with the outside world, the fact that we touch other people's lives simply by existing. But how much more are you, Harvard graduates of 2008, likely to touch other people's lives? Your intelligence, your capacity for hard work, the education you have earned and received give you unique status and unique responsibilities. Even your nationality sets you apart. The great majority of you belong to the world's only remaining superpower. The way you vote, the way you live, the way you protest, the pressure you bring to bear on your government has an impact way beyond your borders. That is your privilege and your burden. If you choose to use your status and influence to raise your voice on behalf of those who have no voice, if you choose to identify not only with the powerful but with the powerless, if you retain the ability to imagine yourself into the lives of those who do not have your advantages, 
then it will not only be your proud families who celebrate your existence, but thousands and millions of people whose reality you have helped change. We do not need magic to change the world. We carry all the power we need inside ourselves already. We have the power to imagine better. Woohoo! <laughs> Harry Potter vibes! <laughs> All right, so I thought that a call to action list would not be complete without a commencement address mm. because that's what it is. You are facing a group of young graduates who are about to live their lives, make big decisions about their future, and basically start out their adulthood. So I chose this commencement speech in particular because I felt like it was very unique in the message that you wanted to send instead of selling ideas of fame, fortune, following your passion. But rather, she taught us the power of imagination. And obviously, everybody's like, yeah, 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 you're a writer, right? And she says, but not imagination that you might think. But rather, she said, with humans, Imagination is the uniquely human capacity to envision that which is not, and therefore it is the fountain of all invention and innovation, and it's transformative because it allows us to empathize with humans whose experience we have never shared. Mm. And so it is actually not the power of imagination, but the power of empathy, the power of making a change simply by existing, by lending our voice, by donating, by fighting for a cause. And I think that was really, really um, powerful. And I think that's why the message resonated with so many people. I mean, it has since been viewed millions of time. It has been turned into a book. <laughs> so, you know, right. She yeah. sold it as a, a, a book later um, for charity. Right. Yeah, so I don't know. Do you, do you buy that message of empathy? Do you think empathy is important? Yeah, definitely. And it's kind of ironic because J.K. Rowling has kind of undergone a lot of um, yeah. uh, controversy lately. And it's kind of in line with the sort of identity politics sort of... That you were speaking about earlier. Yeah, yeah and what she's talking about as well. Like We seem to have this sense that there seems to be this perception that or if you're of a race or of a sex then you can only speak about your experience limited to that. And more than that, you're responsible for all the things that happened in the past related to that gender and related to that race, you know. And I'm not saying that there are not problems, that this world is not perfect and needs to be fixed, but I think we kind of underplay how human we are as well mm. and how we have this strong ability to empathize. Why else would Lincoln be fighting to abolish slavery? I mean, he was a white man, he had a lot of the same biases, but it was his ability to sort of empathize and look at the other person as a human being that allowed him to progress and move forward, right? Imagine if we had the same mindset, oh, Lincoln, you're only white, so you can only talk about white things and you can only be white and you can only, you know, you, you can't advocate on any other issue. It would, be, it would be kind of crazy. And it just feels like last time we used to say how similar we are, but now we keep on talking about how different we are. And I think, again, there needs to be a balance between the two. And so I think what she's saying is really, really important. We need to be able to look at the other person and sort of visualize what the other person is 
going through and experiencing and it goes both ways because you could be the majority and maybe where you're stationed in life you have a lot of privilege mm. it's only empathy that is going to allow you to see that and see the other person likewise if you're a minority it's only empathy that's going to allow you to see that person not as a a suppressor but as a human being because whether you're an elite whether you're poor we still all suffer pain we still all fear rejection there are specific problems and there are like like you said like, like i said there's privileges and things like that but there are human things that we all experience wherever you are whoever you are fear of death fear of death everybody fears that there are things that bind us and so i, I just think again jake rolling's message is very very relevant is of all the speeches is probably the most relevant in our time right now that's not true as well because i find that a lot of the younger generation they do have empathy they want to know more mm. but it could be because of that uh, culture of like being more informed um not accepting what is told to them not accepting this as the reality so i think i'm hopeful in that sense because this speech was given in 2008 mm. which was um fairly a long time ago if you yeah i mean uh, really we we, we were in probably still in high school at the time i think yeah yeah <laughs> am i in high school <laughs> <laughs> just that <started>, um university <laughs> 2008 yeah 2008 2008 i was yeah. from four yeah 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 all right mm. i just entered university okay, okay. <laughs> 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 my age Uh, but yeah, I just I I picked this speech because uh, despite everything that has happened and despite people saying that she lacks empathy now or whatever, I felt like her words that she imparted that day was so powerful because it is not just about ourselves; it's about what we do yeah. that help others. And it actually came from a dark place for her because she was a volunteer with Amnesty mm. and she used to um help a lot of those people um in oppressed uh, countries who ran away refugees uh she would help pass on notes you know when people because you want to get information right on the ground so some of these notes that she reads they're heartbreaking and she would cry a lot um during that time and her grief her sadness comes from that ability to empathize and put herself in those individual shoes yeah. and it's the reason why we are driven by anger you know when we see George Floyd's video yeah. where he was choked to death i don't think the black lives matter movement would have mobilized or would be would have been this strong if it wasn't so visceral and yeah. if all of us like i To be honest, I cried yeah. when I watched um that video and I am a Malaysian Malay Muslim girl sure. in another continent completely who may not be able to relate to the fight but on a human level. Exactly. I know that that was so cruel. Yeah. And that's just that's the power of empathy. That yeah. that sentiment that we all shared collectively drove massive protests. Drove Derek Chauvin to be convicted, to be charged for murder. That's even it's a big deal that he was charged. He was charged for murder. He was convicted and sentenced, mm. which is very rare. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like I see that happening in Malaysia too with police brutality, and I hope that we go through the same process. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So on that note, 
uh, that is our list of speeches that we believe inspired or called people to action. And so at the end of all that, I wanted to ask you, yeah. uh, Roshan, which one was your favorite among my list? And I'll tell you my favorite, but actually I'm still deciding. <laughs> <laughs> I think for it's me, really my hard, favorite, actually. yeah, it's tough because all have a different type of feel or theme to it, right? But I think my favorite has to be Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, speech because I just like the imagery. Like, I like how it's almost like he painted a picture with his speech, which I think is very artful and very skillful and very well done. Like, I think it's amazing when you can paint a story or a narrative with your speech. The other speeches are very well written and are beautiful, but none of them are as image-laden as his, which I think is just quite, quite powerful. So that, that, that would be my favorite. Yours? Oh, Have this you decided? is so ironic because um, Lincoln's my favorite. <laughs> mm. Mm-hmm. Am I so typical? Because when I heard it, um, just so your listeners know, we exchanged the text a few days beforehand and the audio that we recorded for it. Shout out to my husband for doing Martin Luther King's part. <laughs> and I think with Lincoln, when I did hear it, it was almost like a lullaby in a sense that I felt safe I felt like somebody responsible was taking care of me, that mm. is looking out for me. And I think that is a power that you can only get when you weave your words in such a way that it has such a powerful message, but it's still sounding very subtle, very light, like a lullaby. So if I mm. had to pick someone, it is actually Lincoln's speech. Mm. And I also liked it because you highlighted um, a time of his life that I don't think is very popular. Mm. And I also think you highlighted a speech that is not his most popular speech. Mm. So I felt like it was like, oh, um, this surprised me a lot. Close second is Gandhi <laughs> though because of the way you explained it. I'm like, oh my God, that's so amazing. Yeah. Is uh, there any... The way he tried to diffuse tension. Is there any speeches for you that was a close second that didn't make the cut on your side? Or is there any speeches that you would uh, like to recommend for others who are listening? Yeah, actually, a speech that um, was initially on the list but was removed, Roshan, you know, is Jacinda Ardern's speech after the New Zealand mass shooting. Mm. Um, first of all, I'm a huge fan of Jacinda Ardern, and, um, but this speech was amazing to me because of the way that it framed the situation. So if you look at a lot of famous speeches, um, a lot of them is also post a tragedy like George Bush after the 9-11. And so like Jacinda mm. Ardern's speech to me was an epitome. And this is so rare because we can see with Tajuddin also <laughs> that it's not an easy, it's, it's, it's a hard skill yeah, to definitely. rally the people after a tragedy. So I think what was very present in all of her speeches after the New Zealand shooting was that first of all, she will not give the that man, no, um, what's that word? Notoria. Notoriety. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Nori- no, no, you're right. The first time. How no, do I say notoriety. It? Notoriety yeah. by saying his name. Yeah. He will always be nameless and faceless. Actually, for her. I think it, that's so powerful. You know, I think that any serial killer and mass shooter should be unnamed. They should be completely annexed from history. The Romans used to do that. You know, like. Like if there was someone who was really like a Roman emperor didn't like the particular person, they would just delete that person out of of history. So <laughs> these people, you actually it's so hard to know who they are because there are no records about them. There are no documents about them. 
So the, you you might catch a word in a particular document, but it's so hard to find out about them. And I think, honestly, that should be like a thing for everyone because a lot of these mass shooters, they're doing it for the fame. The fame. Yeah. Yeah, you were absolutely right. So that um, almost made the cut, but didn't because I didn't think that it inspired people to action. Mm. I thought it was amazing to differentiate that she said Assalamualaikum. She talked about, she actually talked about the stories on the ground, about the man who opened up the door and said, hello, brother, and I got shot for it. So it was just such a really good speech. But yeah, that didn't make the cut because of the theme. Mm. Do you have any speeches that didn't make the cut? That almost yeah, made the cut, but didn't make the cut. Yeah, I'm really fascinated by history. Uh, I like to read about like old like wars and battles. And um, there's a famous speech by Alexander the Great. Mm. He had taken his army from Greece all the way to India, right? Which is insane. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's and he's so young. Wait, how old is he? Yeah, he, was, he did it in his 30s, I think. But he had inherited his father's army. His father was a great uh, emperor as well. I don't know whether emperor is the right, right word, but uh, he, he inherited it and he expanded and took it to the next level. So he went all the way to India. But his soldiers by that time were tired. You know, they were despairing because the climate is so different. Mm. They're so far away from their families and they're not sure how far or how long this is going to go because it seems like he's consumed by something whether it's lust or lust for fame or power or something and he's just it doesn't seem like there's an end in sight because they've already become so rich and they've become so powerful already by the number of places that they've conquered it didn't make sense to continue but so what had happened was they had actually planned a mutiny and Mm. alexander had found out about the mutiny he stops it and then he gives this like amazing speech uh i mean of course it's by word of mouth so it's most probably not really accurate but the gist of the speech was calling them out you know telling them you are my brothers we went through all of this have i not given you i've given you more and more you know whenever one has fallen i've taken care of your families i've given you well so he kind of like gives this amazing speech that really makes them all so feel so much of guilt regretful (laughs) Yeah, they all cry and they reconcile with him and they continue on. But the thing is, he dies uh, months later. People are not sure how he died. Some say he was poisoned. Some say it was from a disease. Yeah, that was a very powerful speech, but I didn't include it just because I don't know how accurate it is. Mm. And also, it was not really a call to action as much as it was, uh, again, like maybe a bit like that speech that you just mentioned in that it's more like... Yeah, it's more towards reconciling and bringing people together yes. in a way yeah it was very reconcil- um yeah i um, definitely think if we ever do a uh, another episode like this and if we do worst speeches ever made or given tajarin would be number one <laughs> we should definitely it's, <laughs> incidentally i do have that episode i oh, have serious? done recorded that episode it's called malaysian speaking fails and oh. tajarin is on the list <laughs> So look out for that. Brilliant. And yes, we are of the same mind. <laughs> and yeah, we should have a, we should, this is a good list. We should have a bad list. But that's really interesting. I'm learning so much from you historically. And I find that I'm always looking for modern speeches. Mm. I think it's also good to go back and look at some of the words. Because they don't write like they do yeah. in the past, man. Yeah. The words, 
Yeah. Uh, seriously. Definitely. I honestly had such an enjoyable um, session with you. And I think I had another question that I need to ask as closing. Mm. <laughs> I just have to find it. May- okay, uh, maybe before that, I can also just say, like, uh, thanks for, you know, reaching out to me to do this collaboration. I really enjoyed it as well. And it kind of challenged me and pushed me to also, like, examine some of the history figure, historical figures that, like, I've always been a fan of Lincoln, but then reading about the speech, the context, then it, it sort of made me, help me understand him a little bit better. I've always been a big fan of Gandhi, but again, reading him again and understanding the context of the speech sort of gives a different layer to that person, which is, which is, I found very, very interesting. Yeah, and honestly, I thank you for this exercise because I'm the opposite um, in a sense where I see the role models, the activists, the advocates around me now Mm. and I look at how they speak and how they are able to get that much traction, get that much attention, get that much support and then I work backwards and then I see, all right, so they all have their own little context and stories and and I also brought out I also put in the commencement speech there because I feel like there doesn't need to be a big cause mm. or a big fight yeah. or a war it could be a simple uh, the simple pleasure of giving an inspiring speech I, I'm that al- can still and I'm also so glad that we chose we were not afraid to choose people who might be cancelable in this day and age. Like Gandhi has come under crossfire, Churchill has come under crossfire, J.K. Rowling has come under crossfire because of maybe certain views that they've had. But I think we can celebrate the strengths and victories and achievements and we can put the negatives in the proper context and uh, evaluate Mm. it as what it is without having to have to cancel this person out of history and diminish what they accomplished. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I may not agree with everything that is being said by J.K. Rowling now, but I still can't take away the fact that when I heard this speech, it moved me incredibly on like such a personal level. In fact, if you hear my first episode of Seek to Speak, it referenced this speech. Mm. Um, So it is something that I really hold dear to my heart. And that is not taken away because she is now cancelled, quote-unquote. <laughs> um, and I'm glad that we can have that conversation about it. Thank you so, so much, Roshan, you, for curating such an amazing list and also for educating our listeners who may not have otherwise known about these speeches. Mm. And I just want to highlight that it just shows the power of words <laughs> <laughs> and speeches. Seek to speak. <laughs> Seek to speak. Mm. <laughs>